Well, let me read something to you. You all know this verse, but I'm going to read it to you, okay, just to remind you before we start out, before we pray. Listen to this verse. For the, for the grace of God, who here likes to talk about God's grace, right? Me. Yeah, we all do. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. You know, the, there's not a period right there. There's a comma. There's not a period. There's a comma. And then it says, after the comma, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, even the second coming, the end times calendar, so I guess I would say the rapture and then the end times calendar, the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ and the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the earth, it's tied to grace. And oh, if you don't believe the first part of Titus 2, 11, 12, and 13, look what it says immediately thereafter. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, look what it says in the next line. Who gave himself for us. Guess what that is? Grace. Grace. In all things, he's graceful. So as we pray here and prepare our hearts, remember, we're not just trying to, you know, debate you or debate them or debate these people about our charts versus their charts and our paradigm versus their paradigm. Sure, we have a way in which we're convicted that uh, revelation should be interpreted and read, of course, and we feel strongly about that. Yes, of course, but really what revelation is about is the revealing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ by God's grace. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into chapter 13. Lord, thank you so much for uh, this day and uh, for our, the, our ability, uh, because you've given us a place and uh, you know, just the ability to come here and to study your word, and then, Lord, to, to take it out to the streets where people need you, Lord. This is practical stuff that people need in their lives. You, Lord. They need you. You're our only hope and answer. We need you. So, Lord, come here tonight and fill us afresh as we study these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have to start out with a football story. You've got to just tell what you know, right? So, if you grow up where I grew up, which is about 30 miles east of Columbus, Ohio, in a little town called Newark, not Newark, New Jersey, but Newark, Ohio, Jan and I both grow up there, and you know, I basically loved football my whole life. From a little kid on, I just loved it. I could watch any game at any time. Of course, back when I was growing up, there was one game on a weekend. Now there's one game on every channel, every hour, right? Or every, all weekend. But we hardly even knew that pro football existed. We knew there was one team, and you guys are sick of hearing about it, Ohio State, and that's who we knew. And if you grew up where we grew up in the 70s, there was one other team that you just didn't even name by name. Seriously, you don't pronounce the M, you don't talk about that, you don't even say anything. You just call the team up north. 
And through the 1970s, there were two coaches. They hated each other, but really they loved each other because the coach for Ohio State was the mentor for the coach for Michigan. He coached on his staff. He grew up under him. And then in 1968, Ohio State just annihilated them and went on to win the national championship. Well, they asked him after the game, I think the score was like 50 to 12 or something. Hey, coach, on the last uh, touchdown, our coach, they said, why didn't you go, f- uh, um, how, did they, how did he say this? Why didn't you go for two? And he said, or why did you go for two? That's what, he went for two when they were winning 50 to 12. He said, why did you go for two? He said, because I couldn't go for three. I mean, this, this was hatred, and then the next year, 1969, Ohio State's greatest team of all time, the year before, he said these things. He's beaten his, you know, mentee in 1969. Michigan beats Ohio State in the biggest upset in the 1960s, and from that time on, it was on. I mean, it was. In sports world, it was hatred. And when you watched those games when you were a kid, I mean, you hung on every snap and every play. And you guys know it because you love the Steelers around here. And you, you hang, hung, hang on every snap, every fumble, every missed block, every missed tackle, uh, every touchdown. You hung on it. You couldn't, you know, uh, walk out of the room. We're, we were so bad at our house in 2016. There was this certain guy who came from the NFL. He beat us when he was a player, and his last name's Harbaugh. And we don't really like him much in Ohio. And they came, and they've never beaten us, but in 2016, they were really close. And that game was rough to watch. You ever had that feeling? I mean, it's hard to watch during some of the intermissions or some of the, uh, um, you know, after we'd missed a couple field goals and missed some some touchdowns and Michigan's winning, it looks like they're going to beat us. There's a couple times where we had to go outside and walk around the house. We were so frustrated. We're yelling at the TV. We're, you know, lamenting all the bad stuff, but, you know. Just as an aside, Ohio State won, so don't worry. But um, you ever know that feeling with your football team? You ever known that feeling? You know, uh, it's just so nerve-wracking, right? People say that. You know, I almost had a heart attack, and it's hard to watch. And you, you, you just, you, you know, you, 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 you turn into like negative Nelly when you're watching your, your team, right? And everything's bad, and they're good, and you're doing stupid stuff, and all that sort of thing. No one else has got this feeling but me. But you know what's really weird? By the way, that game in 2016, it looks like they're going to beat us. We miraculously come back at the end. We beat them in double overtime, and uh, the place goes nuts, right? And I can remember that day. It was hard to watch. I mean, it was just really difficult. It was really hard. You know why? Because the outcome was still in the balance. It was like a drama. It was like Shakespeare to somebody who loves football, right? It's like you don't know who's going to win, and you got all these personalities and things. But you know what's really weird? That game comes up all the time on Big Ten Classics. And I can watch that game, and now I'm not nervous at all. None of it. None of the negativity. None of the heartache. The missed kick, who cares? The second missed kick, right down by the goal line, who cares? The time that Michigan scores in the first overtime to tie us back up and to make us go into overtime, doesn't even bother me. You know why? Because I know the outcome. See, that's what Revelation is doing for you. We, we're so negative when the trial comes. 
We're so distraught because that thing didn't work out. We studied the book of Revelation, and I've heard, heard people say, oh, man, it makes me scared. And I understand what they're saying. I'm not criticizing you. But the point is, if you read the book of Revelation, and you begin to understand it, and you take it in, and you start to see the character of Christ, or you, you, you see more and more the character of Christ, and it becomes solidified in your heart, you become like me when you watch that game on the Big Ten Classic Network. Ah, I know he's got it. So that's what we're trying to do here in the studies of Revelation. We're trying to reveal the character of Jesus Christ. We're trying to show you how we interpret it as a, from a futurist perspective. Yes, pre-trib rapture people, yes. But, but we're doing more than that. We're showing that God's in control. Don't you hate it when, you know, not hate it. That's a bad way of saying it. But somebody just lets that out, you know, when you're in the middle of your frustration. Well, God's in control. If you don't know how he's in control, what does it mean to you? You, you? you get what I'm trying to say there? People say he's in control, but when you see how he's in control, it makes an unbelievable difference in your heart and mind. I hope that makes sense. And here we know the outcome. And I, I want you to know that we have been studying, we saw in the first chapter, the resurrected Jesus Christ. We saw in the second and third chapter, John's revelation. We saw the churches that he was writing to, and he gave a word to all the churches. And many people believe it's not just a word for those churches, but words for churches today, and also a, a, a recounting or a, a, a foretelling, in John's case, of the church age or the church history. And we went through all of that. Chapters 4 and chapter 5, from a futurist perspective, it's when Jesus uh, has caught up his church in the air and chapter 4 and 5 tell us what the church will be doing for the seven-year period while the tribulation is going on on the earth. Chapters 6 through 19, do you understand how I've uh, now for uh, 13 straight weeks repeated this? Because I want you all to know it by heart. Chapter 6 through 19 is when Christ pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world and deals with the nation of Israel, which he promised he would do. In other words, God's not through with the nation of Israel. In the middle of chapter 19, Jesus comes back to rule and reign on earth. He comes with his saints. That's us. Praise the Lord. Chapter 20 is the millennial kingdom, 1,000-year reign of Christ in perfect peace and harmony, and then some things happen at the end where... Um, Satan's released, etc., and uh, we'll go through those when we get there. And then after that, chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. And there's the book of Revelation. You see, even as you start to learn it chapter by chapter, it starts to do something like that game on repeat does for me. <laughs> it settles you down. It calms you. Now, with that said, we come to some very difficult things here in chapter 13. We are at probably, I think, where we are in the, um, in the period of a seven years of tribulation. We're at the halfway point. And now, God, through the revelator John, is giving us some of the characters who are involved in the tribulation period, and he's developing and telling us who these characters are and what they're doing. 
In fact, last time we saw some characters, we saw a woman, and we decided and thought about and talked about that that woman was Israel, and that she births a child, and that child is Jesus Christ himself. And there's a dragon, and we determined that that's the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, who's there at every turn ready to devour the child. And if you go through history, even right at the time that Jesus was born, Herod wanted to kill the babies. It's part of the gospel record. You you know from the Old Testament, Haman in the book of Esther wanted to knock out the Jews. And then uh, we've talked about this weird, unless you know the Bible, and then you know why, but this weird, worldly preoccupation with this little peewee country, no bigger than Rhode Island, right in the middle of the world, in the, near the Mediterranean Sea, Israel. There's this anti-Semitism that people go, why do people hate them so bad? What a, what a, and we know it's from the enemy. He's trying to, he tried to uh, keep the Messiah from coming. That didn't work. Tried to keep the cross from happening. That didn't work. And he's desperately trying to get the Lord not to come back to the earth. And that won't work. And we talked about that. And then the last two and a half, or excuse me, three and a half years um, uh, of uh, the tribulation period, the dragon just persecutes this woman in a just unbelievable way. And we saw that the woman, Israel, has to flee. And uh, we we know from uh, Matthew 24, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, that Jesus talked about these things, that they would flee to the wilderness. Now, what happens at the midpoint of the, uh, of the tribulation period? Well, that's again in the Olivet Discourse. There's this thing called the abomination of desolation. You're going to read a little bit about it today. You're gonna, it's going to be alluded to here today. And that's when this Antichrist, we'll talk about who that is in a minute, Antichrist against Christ this world leader who sets himself up as a statesman at the beginning of the seven-year period, this amazing statement, statesman who solves and makes a covenant that solves the Middle East peace crisis. That happens in Daniel 9. I really, today, as I was studying, thought to myself, you know, I succumb to peer pressure. A lot of people were like, let's do Revelation, let's do Revelation. I said, okay, let's do it. But really, in order to do Revelation well, I think, we have to know the book of Daniel. And Daniel 9 talks about this 70th week, this week of tribulation, and it's kicked off by a peace treaty by one who is the Antichrist. Okay, he starts the period of tribulation. In the, he seems like he's a man after peace and world, you know, unity. And in the middle of that period, he sets himself up in the temple. We'll see how that's going to happen a little bit tonight. And for the last three and a half years, he persecutes the Jews, right? That's what we saw last week. Okay, look at this. We're going on to chapter 13. John writing this as it was uh, given to him. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, And on his horns were ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. A blasphemous name. 
Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard. What's this all about? His feet were like the feet of a bear. What? And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. Did you notice that? The dragon gave this beast the great authority. The dragon gave him power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. He was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints." And to overcome them, an authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of the life or life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. And he who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints." I'm going to stop there. I'll read the rest as we uh, get going. But I want you to go back, and I want you to st- want to start in verse 1. I stood on the sand of the sea. Now, there's a couple different views of what the sea is. It might just be the sea <laughs> coming up out of the sea. Uh, but most people believe in the Old Testament the sea is something that was, that was uh, a picture of the world. Remember, these people are Jewish who are receiving this uh, vision, or John is Jewish who's receiving this vision, and he has a great care and concern for his Jewish folks as you read throughout this book. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, the sea is a picture of the world outside of uh, the Jews or Israel. And could it be, it probably is, it's probably a reference to both. Why why am I saying that, that? Well, did you notice uh, down below where it says a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns? Now, see, that's uh, similar (laughs) to chapter 12, verse 3. Why don't you go back there? Chapter 12, verse 3 was a sign that appeared in heaven, and behold, there was a great fiery red dragon whom we concluded was Satan. And he had seven heads and ten horns. And now here's the difference. Here's the difference. He had seven heads and ten horns. What did I just say? Seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns on his heads. Now flip back over. At least in my Bible, I have to flip. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. And here's the difference. But on this one, there were ten crowns which means the crowns were on the horns, you get it, instead of the seven heads. Do you understand what I'm saying? The only difference is is their number of crowns and where where they were put. So this is a similar being, but a different being. So what's that talking about? Well, this, seven crowns of the dragon expressed his strength and power, right? And we talked about that, and we, we said, if you go to Revelation 17, it almost tells you exactly what that is about. Seven, or the city of seven hills, 
still to this day. The city of seven mountains is a place called Rome. Ever heard of it? It has seven hills around it. But also, we talked about it. If you read what they're writing about, there's five uh, kingdoms that have passed away. Remember that? Uh, And we talked about, what are those kingdoms? Remember, Egypt uh, came against Israel. Remember, if I get this right, this will be a minor miracle. I'm doing it from memory. Uh, Babylon, uh, or excuse me, Assyria. Oh, yeah, there there was the missing one. It just clicked in. Assyria was next. They took out the northern kingdom. Babylon was next. They took out the southern kingdom. Remember this? And then the Medo-Persians overtook Babylon. You know that whole story. If you don't, we'll go through that eventually. And then after the Medo-Persians were the Greeks, right? And uh, that left the seventh one. And the seventh one was the kingdom of Rome. By the way, it talks in there about how the seventh one's going to go away, and there's going to be an eighth one, and I believe that means there's a revived Roman kingdom, right? Okay, so, so this, um, this dragon is going to work in the area of Rome and Europe to form, most people believe, ten horns signifies a ten-nation confederation, Right? And the diadems at the beginning with the dragon were on the horns, the seven kingdoms. But it's going to be transferred. Are you you following me? When this beast comes up out of the sea from the horns to the ten, or excuse me, from the seven heads to the ten horns, from seven to ten. That's what I'm trying to get you to. You get it? Did I, I misspoke right there, but do you get what I'm saying? The, 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 the crowns are going to go somewhere different on this beast's head, and that's because this one who springs up is going to be given authority over this ten-nation confederation, and there's somehow going to be this unity in the European nations, probably born out of somewhere near Rome, with Roman influence, and this beast is going to be the one that rules over it. And so the sea, why did I just go through all of that? So the sea is probably a Gentile confederation near the Mediterranean Sea. Where's Rome? It's in the Mediterranean Sea, or right there, right? Right near it. You get it? So I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Okay, here comes a beast. And he looks and acts like the dragon. In fact, you're going to find out, it says it plain as day, right here as we keep reading, that he was empowered by the dragon, but he's separate from the dragon. And he's a beast that has some sort of power over ten crowns, Ten-nation confederation, and on the heads, this, this confederation at some point after a pact has been made in the Middle East and there's relative, you know, political or, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? A diplomatic peace. Something's going to happen and its true colors is going to come out and the true colors is it's a blasphemous organization. Did you see that? Where it spews blaspheme at the Lord. You catching that? And the beast which I saw, this is just almost too hard to believe. This is why many people, things like this, believe Daniel was contrived. It wasn't contrived, 
But it fits so perfectly, you almost can't believe it unless you're a Christian, then you do believe it. Daniel wasn't contrived. It was written, Daniel, around 536 B.C., folks. This book, this vision happens, and this book is written around 96 A.D., you see, 600 or so years, over 600 years later, this vision comes and it says, well, this beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, listen, the dragon gave this beast power. Oh, I already read it, sorry. His throne and great authority. So in other words, he's going to have a throne, which means he's going to be some sort of political person. And he's going to have power and authority. And what in the world is leopard bear, lion. Well, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. Go there. Daniel chapter 7. <laughs> Look at this. Daniel had a vision of four beasts. Daniel was writing from the perspective of the one's who were uh, the kingdoms that he knew of, not prior to him, like Egypt, etc. And in these visions, the first year of Belshazzar, Belshazzar, however you say it, I'm, I'm, listen, I'm going on lack of sleep, okay? <laughs> Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. He wrote down the dream. He saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of the heaven were stirring up the great sea. Sound familiar? And four great beasts came up from the sea. Huh, isn't that interesting? Each was different from the other. The first was like a lion. Now, these are going to be in the order that's backwards from the vision John saw. But that makes sense because Daniel's looking forward. John's looking backwards. So you would expect them to be in opposite order. And what these are are the kingdoms that are going to come against Israel. We they give the interpretation here, but let's just read through it a little bit. Uh, the first was like a lion, had eagle's wings. I washed, watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth, made to stand on two feet. Suddenly another beast, a second beast, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, etc. After this, I looked up, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And how about this? After this, I saw in the night visions a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong, huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces, trampling the residue with its feet. Right? I was considered, uh, or it was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. <laughs> had ten horns. And you could read through this, but look over here, over in 15. I was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. And I wanted to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, trampled with its feet, etc., and the ten horns, which had eyes and a mouth. You can see more about it. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, against the saints, folks, and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. Now, when does this take place? 
at the back half of the tribulation period, the last three and a half periods of the tribulation period. And so what is this? What is this? Well, the leopard is supposed to be uh, the Greeks. Uh, Alexander the Great was like a leopard. He just ran through everybody. The bear was like the Medo-Persians. They were big and awesome and powerful, and the lion was said to be Babylon with its proud heart and its great roar. And many people believe that. So when you turn back to 13, you go, wait a second. This vision that John was given in 96 AD matches up perfectly with the vision that Daniel was given in 536 BC. You following me? So out of the sea, who is this person? This is the one who makes war against the saints. Don't worry, folks. Wait a minute. The saints won't be in the tribulation period. Well, that's true. That is true, except for it depends on what you mean by saints. In the Old Testament, the, those people are called saints. Guess who else is called saints? Israel. The, Israel's called the saints. Of course, the church is called the saints. I believe, and we believe here, that the church will be called out at the beginning of the, revelation, or beginning of the tribulation period. But remember, folks, there's going to be 144,000 witnesses. There's going to be those two witnesses at the wailing wall, and they're going to be killed and raised, and it's going to be all over TV, and there's going to be people who get saved during the tribulation period. And certainly... The Antichrist is going to make war against anyone, as we'll see, who will not bow down to him. That could be Jew or Gentile, but it's going to cost. It's going to cost. We'll see that too. So the beast, which was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. So this is one who's separate from the, um, uh, from the dragon similar to the dragon, empowered by the dragon, but one who is coming out of this region who um, has this ten-nation confederation, makes a pact, tries to be like buddy-buddy with everybody, but halfway into the tribulation period, the whole rug is swept out from underneath him. You know this, um, the Antichrist, the Antichrist, John, in his writings, is the one in the New Testament who really calls him by that name. But throughout the Bible, he's called the little horn, Daniel 7, the coming prince, Daniel 9, the willful king, Daniel 11, the man of lawlessness, and the second Thessalonian, the son of destruction, second Thessalonian, Antichrist again in the John books, letters, and the rider on the white horse, remember that, Revelation 6, 2, and now the beast, we're all talking about the same person. That's this one who comes to power uh, during this period or leading up to this period and asserts himself in this period. So guess what, though? The dragon gave him his power, and I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And that slipped in there. And now several times, uh, again, as we keep reading, it's going to talk about how he's being healed or been healed. And so there's a couple views on who this is or, or, or what this is, what this is talking about, this mortal wounding. Some people believe this is a mortal wounding striking at 
uh, the revived Roman kingdom or the Roman kingdom and that that kingdom is not then going to revive itself. Others believe, and I would be in that camp, that somehow, some way, this beast is going to be wounded during the tribulation period, some sort of assassination, some sort of hit on his life. I don't know how this happens. But that as he's mortally wounded, his deadly wound was healed. And there's great controversy, or great debate, not controversy, great debate among people who would believe that it's an actual death, or at least a seeming death, whether he was dead or not. Some people believe he died and that the Lord allowed uh, the enemy to raise him again. I'm not so sure about that one. Some people believe he looked like he was dead, mortally wounded, and then he was revived and uh, came back to life. You'll have to be a Berean on that one and come to the, your own conclusion. Whatever, this is astounding. Something happens that's so astounding, folks. Listen, when Jesus Christ died and rose again, what happened? There was this great battle not to get the information out. Romans and some of the Jewish uh, high-ups tried to keep it under wraps. Remember that? Of course, the Holy Spirit can't be quenched and uh, it spread like wildfire. Here, whatever happens, this miraculous thing happens, look at this. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Isn't that upside down from what Jesus is like? When Jesus died and rose again, really did it, there's this great resistance to it. When this one, whatever you think happened, dies and comes to life again or is revived, however you think that happens, and it's shown throughout all of the world, people are going to marvel and love it and look at it and say, whoa, let's follow the beast. Let's follow the beast. And the... Um, uh, so they worship the dragon. So let's not only follow the beast, let's worship the dragon. Let's worship him. So I want you to catch this. Not only does he have influence in the political world, you catch this? He has influence in the religious world. And we're going to see how here at the back half of this chapter or how he's going to execute that. So they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast. Folks, when I was growing up, if you said somebody worshiped Satan, I don't know what, how to describe it. It was repellent. It was um, so unusual. It was, I wasn't even a Christian, but you were like, what? You do what? You, 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 you hated it. You, you hated it for the person. You, right? But when this happens, they're not just going to be happy with the beast. They're going to turn around and worship Satan himself. That's what's going to be happening in the book of Revelation, or in the, uh, the time of the tribulation. They're going to worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they're going to worship the beast. Satan worship in the back half of the tribulation. And they'll be saying, who is like the beast? 
Who is able to make war with him? In other words, nobody is what they'll be saying. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. That's three and a half years if you're counting. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. That's what he does. He's an accuser of the brethren. His boss is. And the one he empowers, the Antichrist, is going to be an accuser of the brethren. Remember, at this point, in the tabernacle, he's going to set himself up as God and ask you to worship him. We'll see how that's going to happen here in a minute. And he's going to then blaspheme the Lord. He's going to blaspheme the tabernacle, and he's going to yell blaspheme at those who dwell in heaven. And where will you be at that time? In heaven. He ain't going to stop accusing. Remember, how do we overcome the enemy? We learned it last time by by our testimony. And what's our testimony? Our testimony is this. Oh, you're accusing me of something? Matthew 5, 25, agree with your adversary. Man, you don't know the half of it. If you knew how bad I was, you'd be saying more about me. But our testimony is God's grace. It's God's grace. What's our testimony? Yes, you can accuse me all you want because I am bad. But because of the grace of God, we overcome the enemy. It's not how many Bible studies you've been to, how much money you've given, how many times you've served on a committee, whether or not you, um, you know, voted this way or voted that way. That ain't doing it. It's the grace of God and the faith, and your faith in the grace of God or in God through grace. You know it. I'm, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Just read that. <laughs> That's our testimony. Our testimony is you don't know the half of it. But by the grace of God, I'm one of his kids. Well, that's how we overcome him. But look, he will be blasphemous, blaspheming the tabernacle, blaspheming uh, those who dwell in heaven, blaspheming God himself, the worst part of it. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints. By the way, that's alluded to in Daniel 7, uh, verse 25. He's going to, in 23 through 25, I think it is. Anyway, he's going to make war with the saints. And we saw that last time. In fact, there is a prophecy in Zechariah that says that two-thirds of the Uh, Jews, Israelites, are going to die, and one-third are going to be preserved. This is going to be massive and bloody and bad. Well, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Wait a minute, I thought you just said we overcome him. We do spiritually, but there's a physical component to this, and he wreaks havoc physically. He can't touch us spiritually, and authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not just going to be localized to the Middle East. He's going to have power over all the world, you see. He's going to have influence over all the world, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. For those who are not found in Christ, they will be asked to worship him. And you're going to have to, at that moment, in these times, in the middle of the tribulation, you're going to have to make a life-altering decision in the tribulation. If you're found in Christ now, you'll be in heaven 
You won't have to make that decision. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait, folks. If you have friends and family that you want to share with, go share with them. Love them, pray for them, serve them. It's no time to wait. But all who dwell on the earth will worship him because we're going to see in a minute they are either going to have to take what he says they must take or die. And if you're not found in the book of life by the blood of Jesus, you'll fall to the same fate. But praise the Lord, our testimony is the grace of God. Well, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Oh, man. And here you come to the Big Ten Classic. <laughs> if anyone has an ear, let him hear. Right in the middle of all this rough stuff, by the Holy Spirit given to the John the Revelator, he says, he who leads into captivity, anybody who treats the people of God poorly, because what are these people saying? By the way, the people that he's writing to at the time, 96 BC, they're under the rule of Rome. The people who are in the tribulation period still to come, they're going to be hurting. We hurt sometimes. In fact, Jesus said, in this world there will be tribulation, and that I'm not going to actually pull you out of the situations, but I'll pray for you in the situations. I'm paraphrasing now, but that's what he says. This is the word for us. If anyone has an ear, ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. You ever prayed this? Oh, Lord, when are you going to slay my enemies? Or whatever, however you choose to say it. Lord, when are you going to take this guy away from uh, my workspace? He's such a jerk. Or I look on the news. Lord, deal with those people that are, should be dealt with. Why aren't they being dealt with, Lord? How, why haven't you come and zapped them, Lord? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. In other words, those uh, who treat the people of God in such a way were going to be treated the same way. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. In other words, there's coming a time, there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to put all of this right. Folks, as we go through life, it's like me watching the Michigan-Ohio State game. Oh, I said that word. But anyway, Michigan-Ohio State game. If I'm watching it in real time without knowing what happened, it sometimes is misery for me. But when I watch it on the Big Ten Classic, it don't bother me at all. Unless, of course, we lost, and then I don't watch it. It don't bother me at all. It doesn't bother me. I know the outcome. What the Lord's saying is it's going to hurt a little bit. Yes, it's going to hurt. Yes, uh, uh, even in this world, there will be tribulation. He, he's not saying just like, oh, hey, you know, pat you on the head and say it's, everything's going to be all right. He recognizes there's difficult circumstances. He knows it's hard. But what he's saying is have patience. It all will be set right. You know your life, my life, is just like dew on the grass. You know, if you just, if you like to go walking in the park or whatever and you don't like wet grass, just wait till noon. That's what your life is like. But that's okay because you're going to live into eternity with Jesus forever and ever. There will never be a time that it ever stops. 
And he's saying, be patient. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. And I wrote in great big blue ink, hope. A word to the saints. Here's our hope. Look, look, go over to 2 Timothy. I just picked this one out. You could pick a million out. You could pick a million of these out. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Well, what do you say to yourself in trials and tribulations? Hold on. I know the end. When you say to yourself, you know, that person ran me over for that job and I'm never going to get that promotion and I'm never going to, and they treated me so roughly and they lied and they backstabbed and, and why aren't you doing anything? The Lord's saying, hold on. I'm going to put it right. 70 years to me is nothing, the Lord says. 90 years to me is nothing. 100 years to me is nothing. Remember, verse 8 of chapter 2. I just picked one that I could remember. There's a million of these in the Bible. Remember, that's the first thing. Do you know what half the battle of being a Christian is? You know what faith is? A little kernel of it. There's a lot of things that faith is. But you know one thing is uh, faith is? Just remembering what you already know. Not the power of positive thinking. That gets you nowhere. Not the power of positive thinking. That's nothing. That's, that's faith in your power of positive thinking. That'll do nothing for you. But when you have remembering what God did for you through Christ, which is real, it's realer than this, or is it realer? It's more real than this podium. It's more real than anything here. If you'll remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, that's telling you that he was prophesied about, was raised from the dead according to my good news, gospel, for which I suffer, uh, Paul said, trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. I even go into prison. But the word of God is not chained. Listen, while you're here, I get it. It's no fun not to be able to pay the bill. It's no fun when the person leaves and they wreck the relationship. It's no fun. It's awful when people talk about you. It's terrible. It's grieving when people in our life die that we love immensely. We love them. And all the different situations that happen and how people treat each other. I, I'm not trying to minimize it, but what I'm saying is there's something greater. And the greater thing is that Jesus died and rose again and that you have a purpose while you're still here. Because the Lord is holding back his wrath for salvation. And you have this great purpose. I don't care where you go. You have this great purpose. And the purpose is to unchain the word of God to tell others, to tell yourself first, then go and tell others. That's your purpose. I hate it when people say Christianity's boring. There's nothing more exciting in the world to be able to share life-giving truth with people who are out and down and at the bottom 
and, and, or, or maybe even they think at the top and then to tell them the truth of the gospel and to see the Holy Spirit come and enlighten a heart and a person repent and turn and walk towards God, nothing more exciting. You'll, we, we will, won't we? We'll, we'll endure ridicule for stuff like that because it's so important that people go and be in heaven and forget this tribulation stuff and to be with the Lord forever. And here, Paul said, you could put me in chains, tell me not to go back and preach, and I'll do it because I don't care about chains. Because there's something greater and higher at stake. You have a great purpose. I know your purpose. Why did I just take you through all that? Well, because of verse 10. Therefore, Paul said, I endure all things. I endure all things. (laughs) I'm not happy that my dad died. Or... You know, something happened to somebody in my family. I'm not clicking my heels because of all those things, but I know that, that there's going to be a time when all of these things are going to be set right, all, all the things, and, and I have a purpose now, and, and, and I know that enduring is great because we have this function to assist the Lord, although the Lord does it all, but he wants us to help in bringing people to him. And don't get me wrong, he does all the work. I'm not being (laughs) theologically improper. I'm just saying he uses people, fishers of men. I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain (laughs) the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Whoa. I'd do anything. I'd even wear a mask if they asked me to. That's a little dig at the mass people. But, but, so I go back here and I go, wow, what a verse that he sticks right down in the heart of what might be the most, the most awful black part. Right here in the heart of the tribulation period, the Lord gives us this hope or gives them and us this hope for Christians. Hold on, have patience, endure, keep the faith, saints. I'm coming. That's what he's saying. Well, then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. Wait a minute, another one? And he had two horns like a lamb. This one looked like the lamb. Does that make any sense? Here's why it makes sense. Because you now have witnessed the unholy trinity. There's the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And now we're witnessing the unholy Trinity, the dragon, Satan, who wanted to be like God but couldn't be like God and was cast out of heaven, Satan. And he empowers this beast in the flesh, the Antichrist. And now we find this Lamb, who later on is called the false prophet in Revelation 16 and Revelation 19. He's a false prophet, and he looks like a lamb, and he helps in the uh, area of worship, which leads some people to, to believe he's a religious leader. And he's empowered by this same dragon. He had two horns. Look at this. He's a beast coming up out of the earth. He comes out of the earth and not the sea. Uh, Because he's earthly, he's fleshly, he's of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. The unholy trinity. What's the purpose 
of the Holy Spirit uh, told to us in John 16, 13, Jesus tells us the, pur- the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Christ. Look at this. Look at this. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, the unholy trinity. Satan is the great copycat. So there's going to be this one who's like the right-hand person who's an assistant of some sort, like a, the one who executes the stuff that uh, maybe the uh, Antichrist talks about. He's going to be uh, exercising authority uh, like the first beast in his presence, but causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship, just like a religious person would do, right? Whose deadly wound was healed, and referring back to that beast, the Antichrist, who performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Well, just turn over to 2 Thessalonians real quick. I could... Uh, chapter 2. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look at verse 9. The coming one of the lawless one, look at this, is according to the working of Satan, the lawless one, that's the Antichrist. It's according to the working of Satan. And one of the marks of the works of Satan, power, signs, and lying wonders. And when you turn back to the false prophet, what's going to be the weapons that he dupes the world with under the power of uh, the dragon uh, pointing people to the beast? Well, he's going to perform great signs so that he's going to make fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. What? I don't know. I don't know exactly, but this false one is going to make some sort of image. You know what I was doing today on my phone? <laughs> you guys are going to laugh at me. My family's really going to laugh at me. I was looking at pictures of Colorado. I was just been there, man, just taking a break and just, oh, just enjoying. Oh. And then I started to think of myself, Where's that funny function that you press on it and it shows the wind blowing and all? You know what I'm talking about? What's that called? Live? It's that live function, you know what I mean? I'm like, how come none of, none of my pictures have that? Well, dummy, your live function's turned off. So all the pictures didn't get that this year. It just got the picture, right? So I turned it on. Now, I've got to tell you something. Even four years ago, five years ago, to think that you could take a picture and it could make whatever you call that thing that that's doing, where it's just like it's live, like it happened. Are you kidding me? I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, whoa, how, what is that? What kind of phone is that? And now it's on everybody's phone. You don't even think about it. You're laughing at me because I'd had my function off, Right? Well, you read this and you're like, well, how are they going to pop up an image of the beast that's going to look just like the beast, the image of the beast, being able to both speak and do other things and talk and cause many, 
as would not worship this image to be killed. I mean, you're going to put up this image, and I believe this is talking about what's going to happen at the abomination of desolation, right at the midpoint of the tribulation period, where this false prophet somehow is going to have some uh, ability to take a picture, do whatever, make an image, and it's going to project it or put it or however you want to call it into that tabernacle and it's going to be there and the beast is going to be talking antichrist about how, you know, I've done some great things with the, in the Middle East and you should come and now, boom, they're going to slip it in on you. Now listen, folks, it probably won't be, you know, with red lights and look bad and scary. It'll probably look really wonderful. Hey, listen, we've come on some bad times now. In fact, a couple years ago, remember, there was amazing amounts of inflation. There was scarcity of food. There were resources that you couldn't get that you previously could get. Listen, I've done this thing, the Antichrist probably will say in this video. I've done this thing where I can get you the stuff. All you have to do is worship me and take my mark. Something like this. I'm not saying it's going to go down exactly like that, but there's going to be some image that this one projects. I think it's going to be there in the tabernacle, and it's going to cause, or they're going to ask that all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark where? On their right hand or on their foreheads, which is really weird because, remember, the Christians are marked in the tribulation on their foreheads. They're sealed with the name of God up here, remember that? He's the great copycat. He's the great copycat. And they're gonna call both small, great, rich, poor, and no one may buy or sell except that one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, who is the Antichrist? I have no idea. You know all the calculations they do. I remember when I was a kid, Somebody used to say Ronald Reagan is just perfectly 666. Other, you know, other people. And they've gone down through the years, different speculations. Nobody really knows. But you do know this, that six is the number of incompletion. It doesn't quite reach seven. Six. And it's tripled here. Six, six, six. Here is wisdom. Let who, he who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is six, six, six. What do you think 18 is in there for? Well, what I think this is, is it's a warning to the tribulation saints, or the last couple chat verses here. This is a warning to the tribulation saints. Folks, if you find yourselves in the tribulation and you get the flowery talk from the perfect statesman about how you need to do this thing or that thing in order to continue on and to live don't buy into it because you'll have sold your soul to the devil. You wouldn't be counted in the Lamb's book of life. So, what does this do for us? Well, I think this is what it does, and it does it every week. I'm like a broken record. <laughs> One out of 20 ain't bad. <laughs> I'm like a broken record. I think in order for us to be ones who are people who share the gospel like the people in the book of Acts, 
shared the gospel. I think first, before we rush out and do all of this stuff, we must be, we have to be, we can't get along without it, we must be great abiders. <laughs> we, we, we are people who, to be connected to the vine, by the, the branches to the vine. If I asked you how wonderful and how fruitful your time with the Lord is, just you and the Lord, Would you say it's that wonderful morning breakfast where you just linger long and eat and take your time, or would you say it's the Pop-Tart going out the door? Oh, some people like Pop-Tarts here. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying, because where does power and resource come? It's by the Lord filling us up. It's through that communion with the Lord. I think we must be great abiders. It sounds weird, because time is short, I'm convinced that time is short, but in order for our lives to pour out, we must empty ourselves of the things that are displeasing to the Lord and have him fill us up more and more so when we go out, like we said last Sunday, who cares if they think I'm a nice guy or not? Do they know that I'm in love with Jesus? Do they know that Jesus is my all in all? Do they know that Jesus is so important to me, I'd die? I'd do anything. I'd die for me or if they made me pick, or I'd die for them if I could. I'd lay my, down my life for them to know Jesus. See, that's what the early church did. They got beat up and hit and struck and put in jail and said, don't go do it anymore, and they go, hey, we love you, but we can't help it. We must. <laughs> well, folks, let's be hopers, people with great hope, enduring to the end. How do we do it? I think it's through abiding. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We wanted to see people come to know you in waves a massive harvest, Lord. Lord, help us to mourn over our own sin and not always pick it out in somebody else's life. Help us to be people who mourn over our sin, not just say we're sorry. We're grieved that we've grieved you. Help us to be people, Lord, that have a burden for the souls of men and women, boys and girls, all throughout the day, wherever we go. Help us be people who sit under the shadow of your wing and commune with you, Lord, in the mornings and during the day and at night. Lord, that we would give our evening and morning sacrifice, which is our lives, back to you. Lord, may we turn off TVs and movies and phones and receive what you would have for us so that we could pour it into other people because we know what's coming. We know the end of the story. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.